Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Today we're focusing on the service we can provide for our listeners, giving you information you need to protect yourself and your family in uncertain economic times. This show is intended to give you the information for which big companies pay millions of dollars. We're bringing it to you so that you'll have an informed perspective while making decisions on what to do with your savings and investments. Uh, we're going to start with a discussion about the Academy Advised Fund at First Affirmative, and then we'll move into an overview of the U.S. economy. We'll spend a good amount of time on the global economy with a region-by-region -region analysis, and finally we'll discuss the advantages of dividend stocks and the ongoing questions about the oil markets. So, Ronaldo, let's start with the Academy Advised Fund. Uh, with our friends over at First Affirmative. What, what is it and why should our listeners care about it? Well, I think it's a great question, Matt. Thank you and welcome everyone. Uh, it's really great to be back uh, at the microphone, so to speak, working on these issues with all of you and, and, and sharing them. Um, there's a, a company called First Affirmative, which we've mentioned on this program before, who I think may be a very minor contributor to the Academy. I have to double check. I think they may be doing a very small amount of of contribution to the academy, so it's not material to our budget, but I share that as a in the, in, in the interest of full disclosure. Um, but George Gay, the chairman of the board and founder of First Affirmative, listens to these broadcasts together with his finance team to make buying decisions based on what we tell the public uh, we think is relevant. In fact, after this call, George will typically George and I will talk for at least another hour, going over in greater detail the market factors that I'm looking at that I'm telling our listening audience to be aware of. Um, and so what George does is he tries to implement those beliefs that we have about the economy into actual purchasing decisions. So the Academy Advised Fund is a fund that you can join. And uh, George's company, First Affirmative, waives their normal $250,000 minimum to handle your account because you can go into the Academy Advised Fund for as little as $25,000. And we made that deal with George. in order. To, so we provide free service to George. We don't charge for this. And George then passes that along to our listeners who want to have $25,000 or more in that fund. There's several million dollars in the fund now. I don't know how big it's getting bigger every month just about. But it's a great fund. And right now we're at 4.9% or more ahead of the market, uh, ahead of uh, last year. So we're up 4.9% or more. The market's not up that much. So we're outperforming the market. When we started the fund, we said our goal was to make it so safe that we'd have modest growth goals, so 3 to 5% was the goal I gave George I'd like to grow at, and do it in a way that leaves people with a lot of security that their capital is not going to be invaded, that they're not going to lose a bundle. So that's what the Academy Advice Fund is. Um, if you want more information, I urge you to contact us. You can write uh, info. Info at worldbusiness.org is a way to contact us to find out more about the fund, and we can send you a how to get in touch with First Affirmative. Yeah, we do not make a fee on this. Nothing we do on the air with you is done for a fee to investors or otherwise. Um, we're thinking of starting a small service where we might have a minor charge per month, but right now everything we do is free, both in terms of what we do for First Affirmative and the Academy Advised Fund. And that's why it's an advised fund. The Academy advises First Affirmative on what it thinks are the relevant things to do with the money. Uh, and fortunately, some of those recommendations like Investing in dividend stocks have proved to be very substantial and, and, and good. Um, we stayed out of all oil stocks. That was a real that was a real stroke of genius. And of course, we didn't lose all that money. A lot of other people did, who would otherwise have quote a balanced portfolio. And I believe oil in your portfolio is anything but balanced. Yeah, and Ronaldo, I think that the the takeaway here for our audience that I want to make clear, and you know, I don't I don't think we talk about this enough, is that this is we're doing this as a service specifically for people who are looking for somewhere safe to be and want to kind of put this show to work for themselves. Um, the, the reason we made that deal to lower the barrier to entry, you, you can't normally get into a fund like this with $25,000. It's impossible. Normally it's 10 times that much. Yeah, because, uh, because, see, they make such a small fee based on what you've invested that they couldn't put the time into it to do it. Whereas if we do some of the heavy lifting on advising it, then they can afford to take a greatly reduced fee. And I think, frankly, George does it as a public service. I think George Gay believes that, as we do, that this is something you want to make available to people who have limited resources, who are trying to preserve their nest egg, yeah. or they're trying to build a college fund, or they're trying to 
save for their first home. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people have a small amount of cash and they don't know where to put it. And, and we're going to talk inflation later, Dave? Yes, that's at the end. Yeah, so when, when inflation's starting to pick up, which it is, the last thing you can do is sit around with money in cash because then inflation will eat you alive. Yeah, and, you know, just on a personal note, Ronaldo and I both know the people at First Affirmative, and I found Steve and, and George to be just extremely uh, well-rounded and, and on the side of, of people who are kind of at that $25,000 level uh, of investment. So I think I think they really, their hearts are in the right place, and they're doing this uh you know, in partnership with us, and it's it's just been great. So yeah, I'm George, glad to see it growing. And George is, in fact, I just talked to Steve uh, in the last few days. George is the chairman of the board and founder of First Affirmative. Steve has been the president for more than a decade. Uh, both of them, and, and that company is the oldest financial advisory firm in America that deals in social responsible investing. They've been doing this for 30 years. So it's really a great place for you to be if you want somebody you can trust who has your values, who's going to do their best to help your money grow. And because they listen to this program, I think they're doing a great job. So, Ronaldo, let's segue now to the overview of the United States and what you're seeing uh, in the economy and some notable uh, action, actually, by the federal government to uh, help make the economy function more uh, smoothly and, and on the side of, the uh, again, the, the middle class. Yeah, well, the, <laughs> the best one, of course, is they're, they're really hammering now on tax inversions. I love that. I love the fact that um, the government's finally doing its job. What is a tax inversion? Okay, tax inversion is when a company like Pfizer decides it's going to buy some tiny little company in the UK and then claim that that's the new parent company to avoid paying taxes in America. So they funnel their profits through you got Ireland it. in this case? Yeah, exactly. They funded <laughs> That was the goal. And, and it was pretty bold. I mean, it's been going on for a few years now because this loophole basically lets the big elephant swallow the mouse and call the mouse the parent okay it's, it's quite remarkable and it's clearly has almost no economic benefit to anybody except avoiding u.s taxes and you know if you want to sell products in america and if you're an american-based company you, you owe it to the society to give back taxes i mean that i mean that's what we do here we i pay taxes probably you pay taxes i imagine everybody listening pays taxes why would the giant companies in the world the largest multinationals be exempt from that so I'm really grateful that the Obama administration is cracking down on tax inversions. Uh, they put the brakes on the Pfizer merger, which I think is great. Uh, two other tax inversions are now in serious question. And I believe that they're going to, Jack Lou, the Secretary of Treasury, is going to continue to put regulations out, which will make tax inversions highly undesirable, as they should be. Now, there's another subject, which I don't want to raise today, but I do want to talk about in a future program. People have been talking about all the money parked offshore. Right. These tax inversions were in, in part designed to take advantage of that. The money's all out there, and they want to be able to use it all, but they can't bring it back to the U.S. without paying wow. tax. Interesting. So they're so they're setting up parent companies, you know, in Ireland, so that they can bring that money to Ireland yeah. instead. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, and and money that they would have paid taxes on for the last decade, they're 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 they're, they're leaving offshore. Literally trillions of dollars offshore. Trillions, yeah. trillions. Now we're not talking ten billion here and there amongst friends. We're talking a trillion or more. And so the idea of avoiding taxes by leaving money parked offshore and then coming up with this scheme to permanently avoid the tax so that a bigger tax burden falls on us in the middle class, that's crazy. And so taking on tax inversions is a good thing. And I think in the subsequent show, we should talk about all that money offshore and why it should come back and why it should be taxed. And I'm completely against a, quote, tax holiday to bring that money back. It's not on our agenda today, but the Panama Papers were a, a pretty interesting glimpse into offshore accounts and how how, how much is going on. Uh, and it's just a tiny glimpse, it felt like. It was tiny. one little law firm in one small tax haven. Tiny little piece. I mean, actually, it, 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 it's, it's a good-sized piece in the in, in the world of illegal, well, I would say illegal, but highly questionable tax Morally wrong. Morally wrong, for ethically flawed at the least. Uh, you get cut. You get yeah. You know, like they haven't even touched on what's going on in in Liechtenstein and in 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 in. Caymans. I'm going to say Caymans. I'm going to say Nevis. People don't even know that it exists. Delaware. No, Delaware's different. That's different. Okay. Delaware's legitimate, actually. Uh, you're talking about offshore con con countries who hide money. Panama being the granddaddy of where a lot of funneling went through, but the money's scattered all over the globe. And again, you're not you're not talking a few dollars amongst friends. You're talking trillions of, and, and and this money is almost always falls into one of three categories. 
It was either stolen in the first place by people like Putin, who got caught with his or buddies. Corruption in general. Corruption in general. Yeah. Um, siphoning off from the Siphoning. Public. Hey, just yesterday, the Nigerian government found out that $16 billion didn't get turned over to the government from the oil company that yeah. they own, yeah. the government oil company. $16 billion. Now, you know some of that and went through Panama. You should forgive the expression. It's washing through Panama. It's oil money. Okay, so either they stole it from corruption. Drugs is the other one. Huge. It's, it's, it's the way you launder. It's a, illegal drugs. Illegal drugs. Okay. And then the third thing that... that uh, thanks for throwing in the word illegal. Oh, we were talking about Pfizer. I don't want people <laughs> yeah, 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 right. <laughs> illegal drugs. And then the third thing that happens is people who want to avoid taxes mm. in various jurisdictions... And the way you can do that using these offshore... Now, I was designing offshore tax shelters 30 years ago or more, 35 years ago. So I've really got... I've done this for a long time. I mean, I've actually, you know, carried briefcases to the Cayman Islands with full of papers. And what I would do in those... Not full, not full of cash. Full not of papers, full of cash, no. Sure. And what I would do in those cases when <laughs> I was hired is I had a rule. I would only do it if there was a legitimate purpose. So I know how to do it. And I know how easy it is to do it illegitimately. I've actually had to analyze, which at one point I was a tax expert for the IRS. I had to analyze how you know this actually happens. Right. And so I've avoided my entire career getting rich off of knowing how to do that. You've avoided it. Yeah. And you know what? I got to tell you, my business dried up really fast in that industry because if you're not willing to do illegal or questionable, immoral, unethical practices. You don't have an offshore tax practice. What is a legitimate reason to set up a, a shell company in, in the Caymans? Well, first of all, the word shell company is a pejorative. That's an assumption. See, there are many ways to have companies that are not shells. I'll give you the best example. is, uh, And I've done work there. So um, Fidelity Funds is a reputable company. Fidelity Funds is technically headquartered in Bermuda. Most people don't know that. You would think they were, they were in Massachusetts where it was founded. It's not. It's technically headquartered in Bermuda. Why? Because there are there's a parallel banking system in Bermuda, and if you now I haven't done this for many years because I used to work directly actually with Ned, the founder of Fidelity, uh, and I did an, I did an examination for him of some key assets in Bermuda, uh, and the issue was at that time, how can you call it the headquarters when there's only thirty people there with computers, none of whom makes a big salary, so clearly it wasn't really the headquarter headquarters. Now, there was a, a legitimate purpose for that in that you, if you have money that you want to wash around in the global world and you're willing to leave it global and you're going to make it from a global source, I can make a case that you could have a subsidiary that could do that legitimately. So that's your kind of global capital arm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But if you're doing it to avoid taxes, which is the primary reason, or to hide, et cetera, it's not legitimate. And so the... the, 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 the the explanation I would give people is in a parallel banking system like Bermuda, which is completely legitimate, it's all above board. And what parallel means is that if you make a Bermudian dollar and you're Bermudian, there's a whole set of tax rules that apply to you. And if you make U.S. dollars in Bermuda and you're not Bermudian, you cannot mix the two. You can't use those U.S. made dollars inside Bermuda, but you can use them in other parts of the world and never have to bring them back to an original jurisdiction. I see. So, and by the way, I now think that that process has been abused over the years. It was, when I started involved in that 35 years ago, it actually had a legitimate purpose. Now, because companies expect the government to forgive them on overseas taxes, they don't go to the trouble to set up a foreign arm that actually pumps money in the foreign jurisdiction and uses it in foreign dollars. Now, I'm okay if a company wants to have offshore activities and they want to make money offshore and they want to pay tax at the, whatever the offshore jurisdiction where they're they're doing their business, great. But what I don't want them to do is to use that as a way to cheat and bring all that money back to America tax-free if it really belongs in America in the first place. Last point. One of the ways that this is done is with what are, are called inflated transfer pricing. Without going into detail, if I control the offshore entity and I control the domestic entity, I can have the domestic entity buy from the offshore entity at a very large premium above what it's worth in order to put more money offshore tax-free. But now I got the problem. I put it there. How do I get it back to America if I'm an American company? Hmm. Okay. And, and, and that's where this is really breaking down and where tax aversions became the method, the preferred method, and why all these big companies are screaming 
to the IRS, please let us bring the money back. No. Why wouldn't we let it, you bring it? You mean for free? Yeah, for free. They want a tax holiday, right? right? Did, you, did they offer you one, Matt? No, of course not. Did you get a notice from the IRS? <laughs> no. You might get a tax holiday. No, no one did. So I just want to end with this thought. I believe in legitimate competition in the global world. I mean, the fact is you don't want an American company to be penalized in its competitive advantage or disadvantage with foreign competition in another country. At the same time, I don't want to use global competition as the excuse to either destroy American jobs, we'll come back to that later, or to destroy the American taxing system so that the people of this country have to pay an even more disproportionate burden. And that's where I find that it's a moral question. Great. So yeah, there, there is more there, obviously. And uh, so if people have questions about uh, Panama Papers and uh, offshore companies, please do write us at info at worldbusiness.org, and we'll definitely cover that more. Okay. Uh, Ronaldo, next, the next thing you want to talk about was the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. Hey, I got to tell you, I'm so glad they're finally doing their job. What is their it's job? About time. Well, in, in this particular instance, we're referring to the enforcing the antitrust laws. So they broke up the Halliburton merger. And there's an example. And they're, tra- they're trying to prevent monopoly power, right? Yeah, that's one of their tasks. So we have two major antitrust laws in this country, and they've gone way too long since they've been enforced properly. Uh, I would say I date it really from the time Kennedy, uh, Ted Kennedy died, because in the last few years that Ted was alive until the time he died, Ted was a, a warrior on antitrust. And he kind of kept the federal government's feet to the fire. If a thing was going to hurt the consumer, he wouldn't let the combination go through. He'd put a lot of pressure on the Justice Department. I, um, I, I'd love to tell a story. I won't do it today, but I would love to tell it how Ted Kennedy personally uh, is the father of the modern pay television industry because he helped me personally break the logjam of illegal non-competitive contracts that the three television networks were using to to, to block any form of pay TV. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I had to go all the way to the Senate Antitrust Subcommittee, which we did. Kennedy's people bought my story, did the research, did the background. I got some friends in Hollywood to show up to put cameras on. And I'll never forget Ted Kennedy's opening question to the three television broadcast CEOs was, can you explain to me why the contracts in front of me appear to violate both the Sherman and the Clayton Antitrust Acts? That was his opening question. <laughs> and by the way, that day, the contracts went away. Wow. Now, Back to what the FTC is doing today. Yes. So Halliburton. So here's a company that was afraid of criminal prosecution in the United States. Clearly an American company. Where do they headquarter down? Theoretically, Dubai. Wow. Okay. So they left the country. After, they left the country, their, literally. After, yeah. Okay. And on top of that, they're trying to buy Baker Hughes, which is a huge oil services company that does exactly what Halliburton does. I forget. Are they still associated with KBR or are they broken? I'm not pieces? sure. I'm not I'll sure. I've look looked that up. But yeah, look at a report next show. But the point is... They they stopped that merger, and they're starting to so the the Federal Trade Commission is finally starting to do a job, which in, is to enforce the Sherman and the Clayton Antitrust Acts, because we learned before Teddy Roosevelt became president, why we call him the Trust Buster. We learned what happens when you have trusts, when you have one or two or three companies together controlling large industries. And the trusts that he broke up, as you know, were the famous ones, the Railroad Trust, the Oil Trust, etc., which to this day are the, be- the bedrock of how thousands of companies were created because the trusts were forced to break up. And, 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 and that the FTC has started doing that, Federal Trade Commission, fabulous news for the consumer. Great. So we've gotten some interesting numbers that you wanted to talk about, uh, Ronaldo, and I'll, and I'll put the numbers out there. And you, you, you uh, have Adam. You know, there's 160,000 jobs added in April, which many people are saying was a bad thing. And you're seeing inflation increase at about 0.4% in April, which is the fastest growth since 2013. Yeah. Well, okay. First of all, um, let's take the the, the employment numbers. And, and, And I hope there's some reporter somewhere listening to this show that will be incentivized to do his or her job. Because what the media does is it reports what are called the headline numbers. So the headline number was 155,000, 160,000 new jobs created. We've been creating them at the rate of over 200,000. Now, by the way, this is, this is, we've been doing this since 2009 every single month. Okay? And this is the private sector has really been pumping this. The, the, the public sector has been laying people off through all the recession. has not begun the serious rehiring yet, as is evidenced by the TSA. Okay? All the pressure to keep public employees down is why people waited for three and a half hours at, at O'Hare yesterday and why the TSA is in shambles. In fact, a Republican congressman who I don't often agree with called for the TSA guy in charge of the TSA to either fix it within the next 30 to 60 days or resign. And I think he's absolutely right. But 
The problem is that the Republican Congress has been creating economic sabotage. We'll come back to that in a moment, including keeping things down. We knew that we were going to have a growth in air travel because we knew the prices were going to be helped by the oil prices coming down. So we, we, we project a growth in air travel, and we still have a smaller force of TSA agents today than we had two years ago. Right. So of course you're going to have longer lines. And who's thinking about the public? Well, the Congress wasn't thinking about it. They didn't really care. And TSA was just waffling along. Well, if you look at this 160,000 jobs number, and you say, okay, what's really going on in the private sector? Because it's clearly the public sector, TSA, public sector. In the private sector, if you look at that, you say, gee, we were adding over 200,000, 210, 220,000 a month. Oh my gosh, does that mean the economy is slowing down, which is how the headline number read? And the answer is absolutely the opposite. So if you dig in underneath the headline number and you analyze hours worked, it turns out the hours worked went up in the, to an equivalent number that would put it well over 200,000. What happened? Well, what happened was... So let's talk about that. So you're saying that people are working more hours. So there was a big issue with underemployment during mm -hmm. the recession and the subsequent tepid recovery where people weren't getting enough hours at work to really make ends meet. So you're saying that that number went up enough to make up for those potentially 40,000 fewer jobs than some were predicting? Yeah. If you look at the increase in the total hours worked, which includes people who are part-time going to more part-time, people who are part-time going to full-time, and you don't just look at new full-time employment, mm -hmm. you get a different, this 160,000 obviously is the wrong number. But up until now, we were only looking at raw new jobs because there was a, it, there was a labor pool that needed to be employed. Mm -hmm. What this number indicates is that we are now at, as I said last month, we are at structural unemployment. Structural full employment. Yeah, oh, yeah. We, yeah we are structurally full employment. In other words, we can't add more people because there's more people wandering around looking for a job. What we have to do now is to increase the number of hours that people work, which, by the way, has this wonderful benefit of increasing wages. So the next thing that's going to happen is wage increase. It's already started. So we started talking on this show, gosh, last year in the fall, winter, we talked about the fact that jurisdictions raising the minimum wage would be an economic boon to the economy. We talked about the, the, um, the Walmart decision a couple months ago to raise its salaries is going to be a boom to the economy. A million people got a raise on that one announcement. Well, what's happening now is we don't have enough new people. And as a result, we're having to give more work to the people we have, which requires us to pay more also. And now with this new overtime ruling that's coming out, uh, which just happened today, uh, which is going to mean that anybody who makes $47,000 a year, the old rule is 24000 if you make 47000 or more per year, whether you're called a manager or not, you get overtime after 40 hours. Okay, It's going to require more people to get hired, but there's not more people because there's friction, meaning some people get laid off, some people get hired, and that friction happens every month, and that friction in our economy equals to about 5%, and that's where we are. We've been for several months. So this is the first month that proves that once you've absorbed all the people looking for work, then you get this huge benefit, more hours worked, and that leads to higher wages. One last point, and I'm done. People have got to start looking at the underemployed number, quote-unquote, and realize that a huge percentage of it is people in the boomer generation like me. I forget the number. Do you remember how many people every month go, six, go past the 65-year mark? A few hundred thousand. I don't remember. It's huge. Right? Yeah. So we got millions of people every year going off of, or certainly a million and a half or two million. That's money more than I don't know what it is, but it's a big number. We'll look it up. Going off of the desire to have a 40-hour-a-week job at maximum pressure. Now, look, a lot of people 65, I'm one of them, can't afford to stop working. Yeah, okay? So I'm over 65. I'm still working. I like my job, but at the end of the day, I also can't afford to stop working. So, and that's true for a lot of people who are over 65. You know, when I grew up, you know, when you got to 65, it was like, you know, you, you look towards retirement. Well, today that's not true. However, I am, as you know, Matt, I'm consciously planning to be able to work less as I get older, not more. I want my hours per week to go down. Mm -hmm. uh, and I hope I can trade my sophistication for enough value that my time, my remaining time that I do work, I'll be able to maintain my standard of living. And if, you know, if, 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 if Social Security for all continues to expand, if Medicare continues to expand, uh, a lot of my expenses are now getting handled that I didn't have to worry about, including Obamacare for my children. So I'm really happy that I'm in a place where I'm looking forward to having fewer hours per week. And I think there's a lot of baby boomers that are in that category. I found a number for you. 
Yeah. Roughly 10,000 boomers, baby boomers, will exit the workforce each day mm-hmm. between now and the end of the next decade. Yeah, that's what I thought it was. That's exactly because we and we actually mentioned that number on this show once before. So if you take that in a typical year, I was right. It's millions. It's 3.6 million people a year want some of them want less work, and people don't look at that in this number either. So I'm that's that's where I'm at with that, and I believe that though that factor will be understood better because the financial press knows that that 160 number is good because they do read below the headline. Interesting. So let's talk about inflation quickly, Ronaldo. You were interested in that inflation number for April at 0.4% increase. Yeah, and I wanted to look into that. So April had this big jump in inflation, so I wanted to see what that was about. And uh, according to the report, uh, half or more of that number was a one-month spurt in gas prices. So gas has gone now from... Gosh, the lowest it hit was probably around 30-something a barrel, and now it's back up to 49 a barrel. The oil companies are quick, as are the refiners, to immediately jack any increase through to the public in the form of gasoline prices, and they're very slow to roll it back when their costs drop down. Um, That $49 a barrel, by the way, is a manipulated number. Uh, I think I told you before we went on the air, Matt, it's amazing. There are giant caverns in the Gulf, near the Gulf of Mexico where they're going to start filling it in with oil because there's so much surplus oil. They can't sell it all. We are, we are in a surplus oil environment right now to the tune of, I'm going to say, it's got to be a million to two million barrels a day. It's somewhere in that range. And we're going to put it all. They, they've put it, every, every refinery is full to the gills. Every ship that they could load, I told you about the ships six months ago that are floating with it, they're full. So now they're going underground. They're going to, they're going to put the other... Now, do you see how pristine the logic is? They're going to put it back in the ground after taking it out of the ground because they That's have crazy. the belief <laughs> that they can manipulate the system so well that they can control the price of fuel if they are willing to absorb a glut of inventory that builds every day. Now, how does that affect this April increase? Two ways. Number one, if more than half that number is the price of gasoline and you take it out, you say, oh, okay... That's, they can't do that indefinitely. I'm going to tell you they're going to, they're going to run out of caverns like they ran out of ships, okay? and like they ran out of refinery capacity. When you're building up at even a million barrels a day excess, that's a lot of extra barrels. And that has to be stored somewhere because you can't sell it by definition. So why is the price coming up on, on, on oil Because prices? it's being manipulated. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about that all you want. But yeah, it's being manipulated. So, but how much can manip- and I've said this in prior shows, there's only so much you can do with manipulation only for so long. Even if you're Exxon, there's only so much you can do. And, 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 the, and the reality that they are not yet facing is that the, the industrial economies, and I'm including China and India, have all determined that less fossil fuel will make them more money. So the consumption of coal has already dropped off the edge of a cliff. And you already the largest coal company in America. Peabody went bankrupt with, since the last show. It, it, there's one company that's still buying up coal mines. Which, I mean, I can't even believe what they're thinking, but, you know, we're not going to go back to the Stone Age and we're not going to go back to the coal age of the Industrial Revolution. We're also not going to go back to the oil consumption patterns of the past because every single day that, that that million barrels is too much is another day that another kilowatt or two of solar went on someone's roof. It's another day where, uh, hey, big celebration here in Santa Barbara, California. We just opened, last Thursday, our hydrogen fueling station which means now there are, I think, 17 or 18 hydrogen stations in California. And for the first time, you can drive between L.A. to San Francisco. There's one off-ramp in Santa Barbara. It takes you five minutes to fill up, and you're on your way again. So now that hydrogen economy begins to replace oil, just as electric cars have been replacing oil. And that's the future, is electric cars, whether they're powered by batteries or powered by hydrogen gas. They're both electric cars. We've got a giant leap to make between those two transportation uh, paradigms. But right, but it's starting. You're, you're hopeful. Okay, well, no, but I'm, what I'm saying is because the game is already working against the oil companies to the tune of a million barrels a day or more, that means that we are making progress on reducing demand even while the glut of supply is too high. And at some point, the rubber band snaps. And that's what happened when it fell to 30 some dollars a barrel. And it's going to happen again. On this show, I've said repeatedly, when they get it up to $45 a barrel, they're going to hit a ceiling. Because that's when the U.S. frackers come back online. And they're starting to come back online at 49 right now. They're coming back online. So you're going to see more fracking in the U.S., which will continue to create excess supply in a world that's already got excess supply. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back and finish up on inflation. But even if you take half that number up and you go to 0.2, 
That's around 2.5% inflation per year annualized now. I, I submit to you that's a good thing because that's exactly where the Fed wants it. Fed's looking for 2% inflation. That's their target number. With 2% inflation, the Fed can now raise the cost of money, which is another good thing, and not slow the economy down too much because what the Fed's going to perceive is what I said on the show. They're going to perceive that wages are going up. And as wages go up, it will push inflation. So everybody who owns a bond out there, even if they're U.S. government bonds, I'm putting you on notice. Listen to this program. In the next, within the next 30 days, I could issue a bulletin, sell your bonds. Sell corporate bonds, sell uh, U.S. government bonds. So you're not doing it yet, but that could come soon. It's going to come soon. Yeah. Uh, my predictions will come soon. So listen in, because when I tell you to do that, you realize the amount of interest you're making could be wiped out overnight by a shift in the value of the bond as inflation increases. So we're now on inflation warning. The Fed's reading the same numbers I'm reading, and I know what they're going to do. Is it, the only question is it going to be June or is it going to be three months after that? The question people always ask when inflation starts creeping back up is, is it time to buy gold? No, not yet. Because gold is a hedge for global instability, which there's plenty of. Um, and I don't see global instability getting worse in the next 30, 60 days because the refugee crisis is happening. ISIS Actually, he's losing ground. As you know, There's about they've lost 40% of their territory. 40% of the caliphate is gone now. Uh, and their tactics to bombing cities is just another way for them to try and stay in the game because they're losing. losing. They've cut their pay on their soldiers by 50%. Um, they, 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 ISIS is in real trouble. And um, I, I, I saw it with great desire. Pleasant, I was pleasantly surprised that Putin announced he's pulling back about 80% of his forces from Syria. So the world, I don't see the world getting more unstable in the next 30, 60 days. I don't think it's going to get a lot better, but it ain't going to get more unstable. So gold doesn't really play in the fear thing. And if you're talking about inflation, to make up at 2% inflation, gold's a bad bet. At 5% and above, it becomes a good bet. So the trick will be to getting into gold before inflation gets spiking. And I think the Fed will respond before that. And remember, we're not alone in this world. The Bank of Japan is cutting its negative interest rate, it's going to go more negative. It's going to go from 0.1 negative to 0.5 negative, meaning they're going to pay you to borrow money. Well, inflation in Japan is is not the problem. It's the solution because they've been going through 20-some years of deflation. I don't see Germany doing the smart thing it needs to to end austerity. Yeah, so let's switch now to the global overview and all that. There's a bunch of different regions we want to get to. Uh, Let's start with Europe, and you're just going to Germany and also the Brexit possibility coming up. Yeah, okay. So first of all, uh, you know that President Obama was over in London and did something that rarely foreign leaders do is at Cameron's request, he basically said, don't expect that if you leave the European Union, you'll be able to somehow cut a special deal with the United States that will keep you afloat. No, United Kingdom, you break with Europe, you're committing Harry Carey or Seppuku. This is suicide. Because the power of the UK right now apart from its financial markets, which is a different issue, it, the power of the UK is it's the gateway to Europe for English-speaking countries like us. So um, I'm familiar. One of the public companies I'm on the board of has a UK subsidiary. One of the things that was attractive to us when we bought that subsidiary and which keeps us there is that from that subsidiary, we can go through all of Europe. So Brexit or the British exit from the EU is a terrible, terrible idea that's going to, I mean, And people on the left who like that idea, because I know there's some affinity for it, are people who basically don't understand economics. Nobody's got pure social motives than me. But I I don't do knee-jerk economics. So my, my concern for the British is that Brexit will be very, very bad for the British and extremely bad for Europe. But it won't kill the European Union. Refugees might, but Brexit won't. It will be a tremendous economic loss huge economic loss for you. The UK won't come back for decades, certainly a decade from that, if they go forward. And that's why Obama was there saying, don't think there's going to be some miraculous cure when you leave. This is one time when the business community is actually telling you the truth. And we're going to find out about Brexit actually uh, June 23rd. So right. we'll have a little bit of more polling when we get closer next month. Yeah, and, we'll, we'll, and you'll be seeing stories between now and then, keeping them on your radar uh, about it. Now let's talk about the rest of Europe, Germany. Continues to do stupid austerity. Continues to try and push it on others. Thank God, again, about, what, 10 days ago, 
um, the, the head of the International Monetary Fund uh, basically said, you can't keep doing this to Greece. It's an insurmountable level of debt. It can never be paid. So all you're going to do is create more social instability by trying to get people to pay a debt that's just impossible. So if you made a mistake lending them the money, bear some of the responsibility. This austerity thing is killing people. Now, the European Central Bank has not been that much more aggressive, but is beginning to be much more aggressive on trying to address the, the, the ill effects of austerity. But, it, but it's really coming from Germany. And as a result, Germany, which is going sideways right now, um, is inflicting an adverse economic environment on the balance of Europe at a time when refugees are coming in a million this year. And so what's happening is the European political establishment is tilting to the far right. So you've got Marie Le Pen in France, who has a decent shot of becoming president from an organization that's clearly xenophobic, it's clearly racist, uh, it's anti-Semitic, and they have a shot of winning the French presidency. Really good shot. Uh, you're seeing it in the, 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 the main influence that the right is now having in, in the UK. Uh, you've got a, a serious right-wing challenge going on in Italy. You've got a... I mean, in Netherlands, they already have gone right, and they're going to go righter. I mean, they've already gone to a very, you know, very fairly extreme position. It's going to get worse. So when you look at these countries, you see what's happening. You say in Europe, I don't see how they can put their house in order in the near term. So I'm looking for virtually no growth in Europe, even though there are certain green shoots. Italy has a few. France has a couple. Germany has some, but I don't think they can pull it off. So that's the end of it from the European point of view. And so they're not going to be helping us with the global demand. The one, the one piece of good news I saw out of Germany is that their energy transition is really happening. Yep. Uh, they hit 100% of their total demand supplied by renewables. So it's not every electron that they're using the whole time is renewable, but they have created more renewable energy than they're using for just one sunny day, one windy sunny day uh, a couple days ago. And, By the way, and it's going to grow? That's just the peak now? That would have been unheard of or un, un, inconceivable three years ago? Yeah. And now it's the new baseline? And that's, a, that's exactly what I was talking about when I said that the demand for oil is going to be continuing to go down at a time when the supply is already in, in surplus. Uh, I do th- also, the other thing I was just going to say is that they, they do have a, a little bit of coal left in the ground in Germany, some of the dirtiest coal. Yeah. And they've just had a huge 4,000 people showed up and, and put their bodies on the line to stop that coal extraction. So the war against coal continues, and it can't be, I can't be any happier about that. No, I think everybody's happy about it, particularly post the Parisian Accords. So, but, so, but Germany, leading, which is the leading player, of course, in Europe, they were driving that whole enchilada. I would say um, you're, if, if they could eke out a 1% to 1.5% growth in Europe this year, that would be pretty good. If they had not been shooting themselves in the foot with the austerity, they'd be up in the 3% range, even with the refugee problem. And why Merkel doesn't understand that, I do not know, because she's the one who's been forcing it. And it's going to cost her. You watch, Germany is going to go right if she doesn't stop. When Germany goes right, that's a huge challenge. I mean, the theory, yeah, right. Well, all of Europe breaking apart is very scary in terms of the international order, because when Europe didn't have the European Union, it was one of the most violent places of state violence on earth. Now, are you aware that the, the book Mein Kampf, which has been banned in Germany since World War II. It's Hitler's book. Hitler's yeah. book. Because uh, the Bavari- state of Bavaria owns the copyright. The copyright ran out. Mein Kampf is now being published again. At a time when Ger- when Germany and the rest of Europe is going very right wing. I mean, people should not forget history or they're condemned to repeat it. That's George Santana's quote. And, and this right word thing that's happening, which I believe is happening in the United States with the Trump situation, is a very scary thing. This is not to be taken lightly at all. Um, anyway, so that, yeah. so Europe's, like I'm talking, you know, I, I'm not an investor in anything that's, that, that's looking at the rest of the world as the solution, because Europe's going sideways. Uh, Latin America is going down. It's going negative. I mean... Um, yeah, let's talk about Latin America, because it's a, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I think that the the highlight there is that the president of Colombia and the president of Mexico finally agreed at a set of meetings in New York recently that they're going that a forty year drug war is a failure. Yeah. That it's destroyed the country of Colombia, it's destroyed Mexico, and they gotta put an end to it. So Mexico's already changing the marijuana laws, other drug changes will occur, 
And you've got countries like Portugal leading the way, showing that, by the way, Spain is bouncing back. I forgot to mention, people should notice that Spain, which was really flattened in the recession, is actually one of the faster growing economies right now in Europe. And one of the reasons is because they're renewable. Ah, interesting. Yeah, Spain has a huge renewable uh, component. Anyway, uh, Spain's coming back up. But you've got a country like Portugal, which has had legalized drugs now for years, and it's been proven conclusively to be less for police, less for courts, fewer people addicted, less medical bills. I mean, the whole thing is working so well for, and they have every drug. They have like heroin, cocaine, marijuana, whatever. And what they've done is they've proven that it is a health problem, not a legal or, or judicial problem, a criminal justice problem. And as a result, Portugal is eradicating the ill influences of the drug. Well, Colombia and Mexico realizing that, Mexico's already starting to come up. So is Colombia. Mexico is growing. I predict it will grow dramatically faster. And you probably know that for the last three years, more people from Mexico have left the United States to go back to Mexico than have come to America. For three years in a row now. You better wall, build the wall, you'll trap them in exactly. the country. Exactly, the walls to keep them in, apparently. Yeah, you got to let them go. And what's going to happen now that they're going to change the drug laws? Within two to five years, they will have gained the upper hand on the drug warlords that have been destroying Mexico. Ooh, bold prediction, I like it. Yeah, two to five years. Because of why? Because they're changing their revenue model? Yeah, because it, when you take the profit out of drugs, illegal drugs, what happens is you, 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 you take away the base of how drug lords operate. Right. They need a lot of illegal cash. So when you have a state like Colorado or you have a state like Washington or you have, uh, I guess now, California's coming. California's coming up this year. When you legalize drugs, even, and by the way, I think there's a way over majority of states have medical marijuana right now, which started in California. But when you legalize drugs and tax it, two wonderful things happen. You make lots of money in taxes. I mean, Colorado is shocked at how much money they're making. And, 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 and the industry hasn't even taken off yet. So what you're going to do is take a multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry. It's probably in the hundreds of billions a year. You're going to take it up out of the, out of the gutter, tax it, reduce your medical costs from having it criminal, reduce your cost of criminal justice, reduce your police costs, reduce your court costs, reduce your prison costs. It's a huge win. And, and when for 40 years, as the Colombian president said, when any policy goes on for 40 years and it doesn't work, it's time to change it. And that's where we are, 40-year drug war. Well, but if you look at the rest of... So I, I'm looking positively at Colombia, Mexico, because they're going to get a boost on that. Everything else in Latin America is a mess. I mean, Brazil is just a mess. Uh, you know, you got the Zika virus. Uh, you've got Dilma Rousseff has now been impeached, the president of, of Brazil, by a gang of legislators virtually all of whom are under indictment or soon to come under indictment for graft and corruption. Now, she was impeached, get this, for doing nothing illegal. Nothing like she, no, and they've tried to find her with a, with, a, with a bad penny. They can't. She didn't take any money for herself ever along the way. And so that really frustrated them. So how are they going to impeach her? Because they want to get control of the government, which they just did this week, because they want to steal some more. Because these are these are corrupt politicians. That, there was a giant scandal with the oil company there, right? Did you... Yeah, giant scandal with the oil company, which is what's dragging down a lot of these politicians. And everyone was had their hand in the cookie jar. Yeah, except her. Except her. And she kept the investigation going, and they wanted to shut it down. That's why she got impeached. So what was this? Listen to this, folks. I mean, this you can't make this stuff up. This is where truth is stranger than fiction. She got impeached for moving money between two different accounts in the Brazilian government, two or three accounts, but not taking it. In other words, they said that she used money appropriated for one thing to do something else. Uh, I, that, you're going to impeach the president? Every politician does that, you know, in, Every, some, in some way. I mean. In fact, you're supposed to when they screw you up and you can't do it. Obama's doing it now with executive orders. Okay? So why would they impeach Dilma Rousseff for something that is not even a crime? They did it because they couldn't find anything else on her. They thought she was as, as guilty as they were. Yeah, at worst, that's a political issue that voters should know about and they should decide whether it raises to the, keeping yeah. someone out of office. Yeah, and, and, and is, you know, let's have a conversation. You know, Do you like where she took it from? Do you like where she put it? But what she's really getting impeached for is they brought millions of people into the middle class for her party over the last 12 years with Lula and then her. Was she a relatively incompetent president? Yeah, she wasn't that good, candidly. Um, did she start the Zika virus? No. Did she do anything illegal? No. 
Did she try to keep the prosecution going to catch the crooked politicians that did have their hand in the till? Yes. So, you know, it, it, to me, it's a tragedy because Brazil has so much to offer the world, but it's, it, it's going to take a long time to come back. I, I predict that the, the, the Olympic Games will be a disaster for them. Uh, you've got over 2,000 athletes now and virtually all the top brass on the Russian athletic team for doping, right? They're, they're, where I don't know how many of those 2,000 are going to be found guilty, but they kept the samples. And you know the Russians now, it's clear, because the head of the Russian anti-doping came out once he fled Russia, went to live in, uh, in the West, and then released a report saying, here's how we dope the athletes at the Sochi Games, right? By the way, his two assistants, who were not able to flee, are both dead today. Both guys are dead. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they don't. Putin doesn't mess around. He's got a, He's got an execution squad. So I'm now I'm done with Latin America, except that Chile's a mess. Argentina is a basket case, but I think they're doing some really smart things, and Argentina's going to come back now, but it's still a, it's, it's a big mess, but it's, it's at least got good management. Uh, Kirchner was a mess for that country, but I think it's going to come back. They've already settled with their international creditors. Think, I think it's, we're going to, nothing in the rest of 2016 is going to see a boom to the global economy coming out of Latin America. It'll be negative for the balance of the year. Okay, now that leaves us with China. China's doing great. It continues to defy everybody's predictions but mine. Everything I keep saying about it turns out to be true. They're going to do at least 6% growth. They're managing it well. Their banks haven't gone bankrupt. I don't like the political system. I think they're going to, eventually they're going to hit a wall because of the corruption. But China is going to continue to pump at least 6% GDP growth, which is the main engine in the world right now. India, doing even better. 6 to 7% growth. India's doing great. Um, Prime Minister Modi, despite the opposition of a crazy political system there, I think it's the largest democracy in the world and got to be one of the most dysfunctional, although the U.S. is beginning to challenge that. <laughs> um, and Modi, despite all those problems, is continuing to drive a really smart progressive agenda. He now has you know, four or five, maybe as many as six microgrids running in India. Uh, he understands the future of how that ha- plays. He understands why they got to get rid of the coal. He understands climate change. He understands how to create... Um, probably the biggest thing they're going to, that will affect India for the next three decades is the change in the payment system. So the way they change it, so now every peasant, in effect, has a credit card, debit card, and all the money they're supposed to get for either, whether it's farm subsidies or school, whatever, goes straight to their credit card. So they cut out the middlemen who take all the corruption. The middlemen took 80% of the money wow. and all the corruption. So now that's going to cro- start the corruption down. It's going to tone down corruption in India. Not overnight, but it's going to start. It empowers the least powerful people in their society to lift themselves up out of poverty. It's going to take a while. And frankly, they got a terrible headwind in that climate change yeah. is messing with them terribly. And it's going to get say, worse. Yeah, their, their water situation is almost nightmare. It's, it's their heat situation, too. I mean, you know, I think it's Cambodia, that whole area. It's, it, it's like 110 degrees for I don't know how many days in a row now. It's melting. It's melting. And, and you can't grow vegetables or wheat or anything in that kind of heat. And they missed two uh, monsoons. And the around. monsoons. So they're full-on being the target. I mean, they... they, they and I, you know, we, we've been talking about this in the show for a long time, that, that, that India and China, particularly India, are probably the, the most vulnerable country in the world right now to climate change, if you forget about Africa. Well, also Bangladesh. I mean, they're, they're losing farmland at a crazy rate. They are losing it. They're about 15% gone already but, but, of their total landmass. But no, I think that the, the, the reason I'm mentioning it is Africa is already gone. Africa is completely destabilized. It's... It, it's um, if you look at everything above the Sahara, Sahara. Okay, so northern. Yeah, well, you start with the Congo and go north. Okay. With the exception of Morocco on the left. And a couple of little pinpricks of, of optimism that I would include in that. Uh, Kenya? Uh, not fully, uh, but Kagame. I would certainly put Paul Kagame's country in there. Uh, I would put, um, oh gosh, Kenya can continue to go sideways, but there's tremendous pressure on Kenya. Tanzania for sure is okay. South America, oh, Rwanda. You're saying okay. Rwanda. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You take, you take, still take. I was going to say South Africa is still a mess. Zuma is still goofing up down there, and I don't see that changing. In uh, Congo is a complete basket case. You still got the Lord's resistance going strong. You've got uh, all these uh, conflicts that are, you know, right. millions of people have died from, uh, and I don't see that going away overnight. I mean, even Liberia could come back. Frankly, now that the whole thing with the, is over with the, with the crisis on the on the health issues. 
Um, but it's if you take the bulk of Africa, which I'm including all the uh, you know, the northern tier except Tunisia, so that's Libya, you know, Egypt. Uh, Tunisia, interestingly enough, the first country to hit the Arab Spring and the only one that survived is democracy, really, and is doing pretty good. And in fact, I recommend everybody listening, if you can buy anything from Tunisia, please do, because they need the economic support of the West to try and stay free. But they just had a great transition of office. They're continuing to be a democracy. They're beating back the, the pressures of, 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 of uh, Islamic fundamentalism. So now... So, Ronaldo, I want to I do a, a... Try something that is kind of a new segment, and I want to do it with the limited time we have left here, which is kind of expertise for the people. So using some of your knowledge that you gained through business uh, to really tell people about what's really going on and share some of those ideas about how to protect themselves, uh, starting with why dividend stocks make sense to you and, and what those are. Sure, and, and, and here's what I would say to every listener. Look, the people who get paid what I used to get paid to advise large corporations and individuals we make the rules. They, that's what they pay us for. They pay us an arm and a leg to make the rules. And when you make the rules, you rig the game, and that's why the income inequality in this country is through the roof. It has been since the 70s. And accelerating. And accelerating. So how do you change that? Well, you, you got to you, you know the rules in order to be able to play the game. And in this particular context, one of the rules is if you think you're going to be smarter than the market, the answer is you won't be. It's manipulated happens every day. The government is not able to control it. You can see that in the way Wall Street has been able to beat back any meaningful reform, Thank you, candidly. Uh, and so I, I think that what people need to know is if you've got money, this is why we have the Academy Advice Fund, if you've got money, one of the things we started recommending more than a year ago, and it's turned out to be a great strategy, is dividend stocks. So if you can find a stock, it's not going to go broke in the next few years. Uh, because they're a fundamentally sound company that makes a profit and there's no crisis brewing that you know of with that company. And they're paying 3 4 5% or more in dividends. That's a great return in a world of 1%. And what will happen is those companies will have to continue to lift their dividend as inflation kicks in in order to keep it. Because that keeps a floor on their stock price. So... <clears throat> If you buy the dividend stock, not only do you get in on the ground floor and good dividend, which is going to pay you way more than you can't buy government bonds that make three, four, five percent. You, you you can't buy a CD; they'll give you that. You can't buy anything. And yet, if it's a company, and I'll give you an example, 3M. But you know, GE's like that. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them out there that are great companies. I the one I'm involved with, I'm very fond of for the point of the dividend, uh, Taylor Brands. But at the end of the day, if you pay a decent dividend, it's a floor on your stock, and as Inflation increases, the dividend will increase. And as the dividend increase, the floor in the stock will go up. So you get a double whammy. You get current cash and you get an increase in stock price. And that's what's been happening in the market. So let the speculators speculate. You're never going to compete in that world. They're, they're playing games that you can't even understand, let alone compete on. But if you go find companies that you like, and if you, you know, if people want, uh, we can give them access to people who can give them specific recommendations. The bottom line is like well paying dividends, so three, to five six percent is completely achievable from very sound companies, which are not in any financial trouble at all, who are going to be around for decades. Grab the money and run. You're going to win two ways. So Ronaldo, I want to go back to a a, a piece that we were talking about earlier quickly um, here at the end, which is, what do you think would happen in this country if there wasn't all this economic sabotage going on from the government and from uh, from companies themselves. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about that, and I want to put a pin in this idea. In the in the next show, Matt, I want to tell people one of the great secrets of the marketplace, which is how to accurately read insider trading reports. If you really want to know a child's temperature, you take a thermometer to gauge it. If you really want to know what the people running corporations in America think. You, you need to know how to read the insider trading sheets, which are legally required to be published on every public company within 48 hours of a trade. And if you don't know how to read them, you'll get very bad information. And I will tell you the secret in our next show for how to read insider trading reports that will make the difference between you becoming a sucker or you becoming successful in the market. Okay. Um, so just put a pin in that. Okay. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. The best place to end today. We have committed economic sabotage in the United States intentionally. 
I referred earlier to Angela Merkel's economic sabotage in the form of her austerity program, which has been a complete disaster in every country that's tried it, including hers. It's a belief based on a worldview which is not accurate. I understand that some people are still traumatized by World War II, including Angela Merkel, and that their fear of runaway inflation caused them to make bad decisions. But they are bad decisions, and the evidence is now abundant. So if you think that the world is flat, it's not, it's round. The belief in the flat earth theory is religion, it's not economics, it's not science. Same thing with climate change. There's no argument on climate change. It's real and it's it's causing havoc and we need to get on the right side of this and know what we can do to protect ourselves in the face of an escalating threat every day. Well, in the US, as you all recall, Senator Mitch McConnell said the day that Obama was sworn into office, our job is to stop him. And so for eight years, the Republicans have led one wave of economic sabotage after another. Uh, the oldest one was refusing to give more than $750 billion in stimulus when every thoughtful observer, including us, said it's got to be twice that large, maybe three times, to really get the economy booming and on track, which we could have done in 2009 instead of this limp recovery we've had. We could have had a booming recovery. Um, and even with the economic sabotage, we're still going to grow, I think, by 3% this year, GDP. So, which would be huge if we do. And I don't think going below 2.5 is even a question. So the real question then becomes, if you stop shooting yourself in the foot, what would happen? In our country, it would look like infrastructure repair. Those are all American, high-paying American jobs. Why aren't we doing it? And when the federal government can borrow money at 1% or less, 1%, that's the time you build bridges. That's the time you fix roads. That's, and then you pay it back with inflated dollars. Trump was making that point actually well, one of the few things he said that's accurate. If you borrow now and, and create an asset that's valuable to you. Let me give you an example. Do you know how many millions of human hours are lost and how many hundreds of billions of tons of steel are wasted every day in traffic jams? Wow. It's astronomical. How's it it's, wasting steel? Because all those cars are sitting idly. Oh, I see. So not having a transportation system, having people commute, and I know one personal example of a guy who just joined a company that I'm um, um, CEO of, he commutes. He was grateful that he got his commute down from three and a half hours to two hours and 15 minutes one way. Now, do you know what that costs him and the economy? It's insane. It's insane, right? It's totally insane. So infrastructure would get changed. Well, when you hire guys to go out and women to go out and build bridges and subways and train lines, we, we were the leader in the world on long distance train transportation in 1850 and we're not in the top 25 today. Okay, Just fixing the trains. I just took a train last week. I went from New York, Penn Station, down to Washington, D.C. And I went from inner city to inner city. The, it took me exactly two hours and 57 minutes there was no TSA. It took me 10 minutes to get on board the train and five minutes to get off of it. I had electricity the entire way from my laptop. I had Wi-Fi the entire way and I had a really comfortable ride on Amtrak. That's what we're capable of. And that, that travels at half the speed of the stuff in Europe or China. Or, or even less, yeah. Yeah, so we're capable of doing it, but it's the political obstruction. That's what I'm fighting here. I'm saying, look, let's stop with this desire to economically stagnate. So the oldest example, Mitch McConnell, January 20, 2008. No, uh, 2009, he was sworn in, right? Well, that's that's not even the oldest example, but yes, that is the most recent the most example re from the Obama You want the most current? Yeah. You want the most current? Yeah. The Senate passes a bill for $1.1 billion. Now, they should have passed for $1.9 billion to stop Zika. 500 cases in Florida already. And the mosquito season is just starting. So $1.9 is going to turn out to be cheap if we don't get this thing under control. It gets to the Senate at $1.1 Again, $800 million chip for no reason. It goes to the House and they go, we'll give it like a couple hundred million bucks. They couldn't even agree with the Senate. So what you have is a situation where Zika, the mosquitoes, born disease, is coming. It's going to create enormous amount of destruction. I mean, I would not want to be a woman 
living in about 38 states in America, starting with Florida, California, Texas, Mississippi, Georgia, all the Carolinas. I mean, I could go on and on. It, it, this thing, and this thing can spread as far north as New York now because of climate change. So here you have this enormous health crisis. We know what to do to stop it, and we won't pay to stop it. That's economic sabotage. The cost to us is far greater than the $1.9 billion that was asked for. Far greater. So we have to stop doing that. And if we don't stop doing it, we're, we're, we're going to be 28th in the world in terms of education will look like a good number. Okay, uh, uh, 24th in the world in terms of transportation will look like a good number. And I could go on and on. We are becoming a third world country. And we're doing it to ourselves. So what are we capable of? In a nutshell, and I'll end on this note. We could create easily a 4 to 5% GDP growth annually, which would be relatively low inflation. We could go from a, an economy today which would probably double within 10 years. Double. Can you imagine all the schools you can pay for? All the free education to college? That's another one. Okay, we, we were the first country in the world to do universal education paid for by the state through high school. Today, a junior college, a community college, is that same equivalent, and we don't pay for it. We've got to start paying for it. And we need to pay for four years of, of college as well. And we need to change our immigration policies so that when people come here from all over the world to go to our most prestigious institutions, we make it easier for them to stay in the country and become taxpayers instead of sending them home to their own country to compete with us. I mean, I could go on and on, but basically economic sabotage is what we've been doing to ourselves, and we must stop. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ronaldo, and thank you all for listening. Uh, on behalf of the World Business Academy, uh, it's a pleasure to bring you this information, and we'd love to hear from you. So please do write to us at info at worldbusiness.org. And until next time, connect with us at worldbusiness.org, and tune in next month for New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Matt.